HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, this is Diane Stemple on Heritage Radio Network's Cutting the Curd. Today, I am pleased to welcome in the studio both Alan G. Baird and Mary Grace Foxwell to talk about their book, The Land of Milk and Uncle Honey. Welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. I'm delighted to have you both, and we have some visitors also uh, in the studio. And the subtitle of the book is Memories from the Farm of My Youth, and that would be your youth, Alan. That was my youth. (laughs) Great. So our listeners should know that you have, Alan has, been writing a national column called The Farm and Food File since 1993. I have. I began the column in May of 1993 after about 14 years of writing magazine stories for national farm publications mm-hmm. like the Farm Journal and Successful Farming Magazine. Mm-hmm. I was a magazine writer who okay. always wanted to be in newspapers, so I started the column. <laughs> okay. And and Mary Grace is his daughter who helped him edit the book. Correct. I'm, I'm not a writer by trade, but I've always been a reader by mm-hmm. trade. Mm-hmm. So the book is a compilation of many of the more personal columns from uh, from the Farm and File Report, yeah, correct? Yeah. The weekly uh, column, yeah. I write 51 columns a year. Each one is different, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's it's pretty heavy lifting. It's, it's farm and food policy and politics. Mm-hmm. And so about once or twice a year, I get exhausted from just writing that. And so Mm -hmm. I began taking a break from the column by giving the readers a break and not writing about policy for one week or so Mm -hmm. a year. And it was those columns 
that were about quote the farm the, the southern Illinois dairy farm of my youth unquote. Mm-hmm. and that then became the book okay now from you started in 53 and you're still doing the weekly column uh, I started in 93. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I still do the weekly column. In fact, uh, we're doing this show on a Monday, and I have a deadline of Wednesday. Oh, dear. And oh, dear. I just started the column. So <laughs> I write the column fresh each week. People mm-hmm. think I have four or five in what we call the bank. There's no bank. <laughs> There's a run on banks. We don't put them in banks. You don't ever have one in the bank? I had one in the bank to make this trip out here oh, in okay, the yard. Oh, okay, good. good. But, so, the mental but, bank, yeah. Right, right, but not for Wednesday. That was last week's. Yes, I have okay. I have to write a column here in the next 36 okay. hours. Got any ideas? Uh, not right now, but I should have read more of your political stuff so I could give you some ideas. Yeah. Now, I realized as I was going through that these were the more emotional columns, the more memoir columns. Exactly. I, I tried not to be sentimental in, in the in the columns when I write these Farm of My Youth columns. Mm-hmm. And I tried not to be romantic either. Um, I, I want, what I was aiming for was to ensure that the people of my youth and the food of my youth were remembered. Mm-hmm. And uh, because all, all those things played a key role in not just my upbringing, but my professional life. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And you do a good job of capturing both the food and the people, I think. Now, how and when did the book idea come about? And was it your idea, Mary Grace? It was my idea. I, I had, well, actually, it was my idea in combination with hundreds of other readers mm-hmm. who had the same idea and who had oh, asked great. Dad for a book, a compilation of, of these columns for several years. And most of these readers are named Enid, Ruth, mm-hmm. Mary Beth, uh-huh. and they live in great states like Nebraska and South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, and they write to Dad often whenever he, they read a column about Honey or Howard or Jackie, and they'd say, you know, I've clipped out this one since 1997 and I'd actually like to have it in one place versus just clippings in my file cabinet and dad also had clippings in his filing cabinet and so I asked for um, to read all of these columns that he had written since 1993 about Indian Farm and there ended up being well over 60 of them that I then read through and edited and we compiled into the book um, to Mm. appease Enid Mary (laughs) (laughs) Ruth and um, who was more eager to do the book between the two of you. <laughs> well, that's, that's... A gesture towards Mary Grace? That's pretty easy. Uh, well, Mary Grace asked for the columns because when I started the column, she was eight years old. Right. And while she's an avid reader and, and is a little bit more than eight years old today, she hadn't read the columns that I wrote 10, 12, 15, 20 years ago. Right. That's really how it got started. She mm-hmm. wanted to read all those columns. And a lot of it was family history sure, and yeah. your history. My parents are still alive. Uh, oh, she, I was going to ask. She had memories of the farm visiting them, and mm-hmm. she kind of wanted to see what how it used to be from, from my mm-hmm. memory. When she read them all, she, she said, you know, you have a book here. Well, I kind of knew I had a book here, and I'd always kind of planned to do a book. But believe me, I would have never done it. Uh, I know how I operate. Uh, mm-hmm. Deadlines come too fast and furious. And there's right. other there's other things to take you away from from projects like this, cutting wood or you know going fishing, eating mm-hmm. cheese, eating mm-hmm. cheese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So Gracie, I said, well, fine, go ahead. Okay. And duck on it, she did. Okay. Now, um, did the publisher have input 
or when at what point was a publisher involved? Um, the publisher really we we had a manuscript really in almost final form and okay. we shopped it around to various publishers mm-hmm. and so dad is a graduate of the University of Illinois and we were very pleased that they were interested in the manuscript mm-hmm. and um, then it was about a year process in which we refined the manuscript and they mm-hmm. helped in the editing process but it was it was in very near final form mm-hmm. did the idea evolve through time? Did you get more focused on one thing or another? Well, Gracie actually arranged the book in its in its manner. She arranged and came up with the the, the seasons as the chapter breaks. She's the one who... I cha- like that idea. Well, I, the, the, the book is written from spring through, through winter. winter, so it's the seasons of a farm, and so there's lots of columns about planting and getting the... the, the dirt ready mm-hmm. um, and then it keeps going through the summer and she came up with that uh, mm-hmm. she had me write a prologue mm-hmm. uh, and then she edited all the columns and then she wrote an epilogue which mm-hmm. I think is a key part of the book because it shows how people can view the same things differently uh, in, in terms of farms or food mm-hmm. or farm people um, but the key thing that the University of Illinois came up with mm-hmm. Was the title "The Land of Milk and Uncle oh, Honey"? That was my next question. Who put Uncle Honey into the title? Well, I'm embarrassed to admit <laughs> that it wasn't it, us. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't me. And, and Gracie and I really worked hard. Gracie did ex- exceptionally good work, but I had an Uncle Honey. My father's uncle was named, you uh, nicknamed Honey, and everyone. In his whole life, everywhere called him Honey. So, uh-huh. and the in the course of the dairy farm, we had cows and milk. So the um, the marketing director, the University of Illinois uh, Press, called, and he's a giant of a guy with a very gentle manner, mm-hmm. and said, "We we have some ideas for book titles because, frankly, yours don't work." <laughs> well, we knew that. We, we what, did, were yours bad? Uh, <laughs> they're so bad, I don't remember them. Do you, Grace? They're not worth remembering. Yeah. So the, the the marketing manager said, we, we have this one, and we'd like to run it by you. Mm-hmm. So are you ready? And we're, and Gracie and I are kind of smugly sitting around a conference call kind of thinking, oh, this can't be good, because we worked so hard and came up with such bad names. <laughs> and he said, how about the land of milk and Uncle Honey? And I think we both heard each other fall off our chairs. <laughs> you both loved it. We, well, it was so apparent. <laughs> And we, we, it was literally, we couldn't see the acorn for the trees. You yeah, know? yeah, it's a great title. Oh, it's a and, pearl. And let's, let me tell the listeners who have not read the book yet, uh, Uncle Honey is a, an incredible character in the book. He pops up often. And how did your father ever deal with all the broken equipment and calamities that Uncle Honey generated? Well, there were two key things in my father's background that, yeah. that made it work with Uncle Honey. <laughs> One was my father's uh, pretty mild-mannered, never, very, very slow to anger. Mm-hmm. I think my father got angry at me once in my whole life, mm-hmm. uh, and he had good cause. I dropped a pipe wrench on his head <laughs> when he was working in a ditch, mm-hmm. um, and I think that would have made me mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing, Uncle Honey owned a, a part of the farm. Uncle Honey's oh, brother was okay. my was my grandfather, Dad's dad, mm-hmm. and Uncle Honey did not know, but Grandfather had kind of garnished Honey's wages over the years. And oh. He was a milkman in town, 
Oh, wait, but he garnished his wages as a milkman? Yes. Why? And because my grandfather was a stockbroker, and Honey gave him his money and took care of it. And one day, Honey woke up, and he owned a quarter of a farm. Oh, okay. Okay, so, garnished his his yeah. wages to buy part of the farm. He he made his living with in quarters. There was a quart jar on the back porch of everyone's stoop in the morning with a quarter on it. Oh, and honey okay. would honey would get That's how all much these, milk costs. Yeah, a quarter or a quart. Oh my gosh. And honey would come home with these pockets full of quarters, uh-huh. stack them all up, grandpa would grab a few piles, uh-huh. and that would he invested it. So when Honey retired as a milkman in town, mm-hmm. uh, isn't it just perfect that he would go down to the dairy farm that he already owned a quarter of an interest in? And now he knew he owned a quarter of it. But it didn't matter. He right. was he wasn't right. a bossy person. Right. He just right. said right. he showed up one day and said, "I'm here to help." Okay. And my my father, who had every memory of Honey on the milk truck, knowing that Honey and the milk truck didn't get along at all. <laughs> Uh, he break the milk truck too. He absolutely. He never used a clutch shifting the milk <laughs> truck in thirty some odd years. And my father's farm equipment, each piece, had a clutch. Oh, I'm sure. So and my, a it, significant one. Every. So my my father knew exactly what was going. What to he happen. was getting into. Exactly. And, and but, furthermore, but it was honey his was, uncle. Yeah, it, it was, was his uncle. What I was right. Now, did he feel? Um, like he couldn't turn him down out of respect. Absolutely. Okay. Well, and he was significantly older. He right. Was, right. You know, right. The right. elder. He was right. his. He was right. his uncle. His mm-hmm. father's brother. Mm-hmm. This is a very German, very mm-hmm. Lutheran, okay. Missouri synod farm. Okay. And elders were not only honored; they were revered. Right. And and honey. <laughs> Would never said anything that would ever uh, anger anyone. He anyone. was a very nice and mild mannered, wonderful man. man. We okay. would ride the milk trucks with him, and he would give us orange drink. And 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 while well, I grew up on a dairy farm, I never had chocolate milk. We wouldn't waste chocolate on milk. Mm-hmm. We would drink milk because it was good for you. Honey would give us chocolate milk <laughs> off the milk truck. <laughs> we wouldn't do anything to, to hurt that relationship. That was great. Uh huh. So I was going to ask. Um, with memoirs, I always wonder. Who from the past is still alive and has read the book, and how did they react? So, in fact, very few people in this book are still alive, and Um. that was a a key interest of mine because most of these characters had passed away even before I was born, and so Mm -hmm. I only really got to know them through the stories as well, just like the reader. Mm -hmm. And so the only people still alive that are mentioned in this book are my grandparents and then my father's brothers and sister, and they've all read the book, and they all... They all think it's just so funny. My grandparents probably think it's so humorous that anyone's even taking the time to read about their lives, uh-huh. frankly. My grandmother uh-huh. probably thinks it's it's quite interesting that anyone would find it interesting that uh-huh. she would can uh-huh. 100 quarts of peaches. <laughs> she would she would just roll her eyes and say, oh, I, I don't know why anybody wants to read about that. Uh-huh. Um, but both of my grandparents are still alive, as mm-hmm. I joke, a testament to nicotine and lard. They are <laughs> alive and well. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, my, my father's 88, my mother's 83. Uh-huh. Uh, we'll see them this Saturday. In fact, we go down to Southern Illinois to visit them and do a book reading down there for my local, my, my hometown. Um, but I think Gracie's got it absolutely right. My parents think they want, my, my father, because he's just a nice guy, has never really said anything negative about any of the columns that I've written, uh-huh. more than 1,500 of them. <laughs> and, and, and he reads every one. He mm-hmm. reads them all. Mm-hmm. And moreover, his political philosophy 
it couldn't be more different than mine. Mm-hmm. So what I present in most of the columns is nothing that he would ever agree with. <laughs> However, he never disagrees with me. Wow. Yeah, that yeah, I don't that's know. Impressive. It's really. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's well, just, it's German. Is yeah. he just supportive? Like, oh, my son's no, a, no. a writer. Well, yeah, he's I've very. My pr- son's a writer and doing well, and this is great. Well, he's very proud of that, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. he's also the kind that would never say that. Mm-hmm. He would mm-hmm. say, "Well, how are you doing?" Yeah, mm-hmm. and and he will comment on on the columns of my youth. And Gracie's called it once before, and, and we should explain. Perhaps we've called it the Indian Farm columns. That was the name of our farm mm-hmm. because it was right where if you if anyone wants to look on a map you find the Mississippi River easy enough south of St. Louis about forty miles on the Illinois side there's a river comes in it's called the Kaskaskia River that's where the farm was mm-hmm. well there was a tribe of the Illinois Confederacy of Native Americans called the Kaskaskia and that was where their lodges were mm-hmm. on that farm and the maps and everything indicate that it was called. At that time, the Indian farms, mm. that's where the Indians had their farm. And that's why you keep finding Arrow Indian ar- artifacts yeah. mm-hmm. while you're farming. Yeah, it's very mm-hmm. famous in mm-hmm. Illinois history. Mm. That part of Illinois is very famous. Very, very fertile. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's all mm-hmm. the, the floodplain of the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. So it was Indian farm. So my, my father was its manager until he mm-hmm. got to be part owner. Mm-hmm. Mary Grace, I'm um, much closer to your dad's age than yours, but my father was from a farm in West Virginia, and I have the same. Uh, I spent a week every summer at the farm, going with Uncle Donald to feed the cows, or uh, that's okay, uh, or you know, get the eggs from the chickens, or um, all sorts of things. The canning was amazing. The basement, I just love the smell of canning basements so i really could relate to your part at the end the epilogue is excellent comparing what you remember and what your father says about the farm well and i think to be totally candid i didn't have to do any work on that farm right there's a big difference between his childhood of total work and yours of of vacation right or camp really you know we could be filthy and no one would tell us to stop running in ditches or you know, playing in grain bins or silos, even though that's mm-hmm. highly dangerous. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we'd play with, you know, livestock, any that were around or, or go on four wheelers without helmets. And there were no rules, seemingly. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when I would be around my, my father and his siblings and talking or hearing them talk about chores or work or getting up you know, while it was still dark to milk cows and walking down uh, to the dairy barn with a flashlight before they got on the school bus and went to school, came home, milked cows again, did their homework, went to bed, did it all over again. Um, really, their their whole youths were spent that way. You right. know, my youth was spent like probably a lot of people listening to this, riding mm-hmm. bikes, mm-hmm. going to camp, on a swim team, mm-hmm. spending time with my friends. And so when I had that um, pastoral getaway mm-hmm. to Indian Farm, it was it was just an escape. It was right. a whole Idealistic, world. right. Okay, we're going to take a break now. It's time for our break. This is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd, talking about the land of milk and Uncle Honey.
When we were still in school All the good times that we shared Are breaking all the rules I try to find a place with no one around I try Hi, this is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. This is my first season as a host, but at the Brooklyn Kitchen, we've been supporting Heritage Radio for many years, and I really believe in what Heritage does. It is a fantastic network that really highlights everything that is going on in food in America, from restaurant openings to farms uh, to my show, where I feature interesting people with interesting stories related to food. But Heritage is a not-for-profit. We don't make any money. Uh, Most of the hosts do this because we love to do it, and we really do need your help as listeners. We'd love to have you listen, whether you can give any money or not. The website will still be up. You can still stream your favorite shows. But if you do like the programs here on Heritage Radio, we really would encourage you to go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org, click on the beating heart in the upper right-hand corner, and give whatever you can. If you drink coffee every afternoon, while you listen to shows on Heritage, then maybe you can give us the cost of a cup of coffee once in a while. If you want to become a larger member, there's all kinds of great things you get if you become a member of the station and a larger supporter. So please join me, join the Brooklyn Kitchen, join our other great sponsors, and become a member. Hi, it's Diane Stemple back on Cutting the Curd with Alan G. Barrett and Mary Grace Foxwell. We're talking about the land of milk and Uncle Honey. So I want to talk about some of the parts of the book. I love the farmhands. You want to talk a little bit about the farmhands and how important they were in your 
I would I would just interrupt Dad real quickly and say that that those characters, Diane, like every you're like every other reader Dad has had in saying that they connect very closely with those farm. They're very simple people. Mm-hmm. They really never left the farm. They did nothing extraordinary in mm-hmm. their lives. But most people like dad's age who grew up on a farm mm-hmm. know people yeah, like that and yeah. remember them. And, and they're often forgotten. I had one in, that worked on my father's farm called Buck. And he was not the brightest. But uh, And my husband always teases me about Buck because he called me Dayton Jr.'s middle girl. But, I, you know, I really liked him. I really liked him. Well, this, this, the, the key players in the book, the key hired people, and we call them hired hands, it's, it's, it's viewed today as, as a term of less, in, in, less of endearment than just, uh, I don't know, derision, but it, they were happy to be hired hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came with the farm. Yeah. Uh, they, they worked their whole lives on the farm. They were raised on the farm, in fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were principally of one family. There were four brothers, uh, two who which, of which who worked on the farm. All four worked at one time or another. As my father would say, only two made the grade. Uh, the other two, the oldest, uh, the two youngest, really, I guess, uh, they had other interests, and they just didn't work out on the farm. Mm-hmm. They were a little bit more preoccupied. But the two older ones who did mm-hmm. were Jackie and Howard. Mm-hmm. And here's the irony of those two, of the four making it. Jackie could neither read nor write. Mm-hmm. He was completely illiterate. Uh, and Howard, who could read and write, read and write had spent nearly 20 years in an asylum. Hmm. But he wasn't crazy. Uh-huh. He was put there by his father, who Howard was angry one time when he was a younger man. Mm-hmm. And his father had him committed, which was very common back in those days. And you could just be locked up for 20 years? 20 years. Howard milked cows by hand, morning and evening, for 20 years. And when the father finally died, my grandfather... Went down and got him. Wow. And then he came back to the farm where he worked till his last day on the farm. Wow. And, you know, a lot of, we, we say this at um, book events and with readers that we've met, you know, we've been grateful to meet this summer um, on this book tour is saying that all of those people, you know, have a story. They all came from somewhere. They have families. They have reasons why they're working in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times those stories aren't told. And so mm-hmm. for us, it was very important to share those stories about Howard, Jackie, Orly, their mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are several others in the book who came in and out of my father's life and his mm-hmm. siblings' lives. And they're all remembered very fondly because... Right. In a lot of ways, they helped raise mm-hmm. those kids. Mm-hmm. Well, well, you were out working with them. Absolutely. We were with them more than with my father or mother combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd spend 7, 8, 10, 12 hours a day baling hay or mowing hay or cultivating or spraying. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and the more I write about it and the more I wrote about it and the more I reflect on this book, is that, you know, we in this country used to have what we called agriculture. Mm-hmm. And guys like Jackie and Howard, the hired men, and they were everywhere in, in American agriculture 1,500 mm-hmm. years ago. They were everywhere. Today, there's there's none of them. Right. They're, 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 they don't exist. They've been replaced by what our ag economics professors said, capital. So mm-hmm. we took money and we replaced them with machinery. Right. And there, with them went the culture of mm-hmm. agriculture. Mm-hmm. A key element of rural America is just gone. Mm-hmm. These people... Were, they ran everything. They were important. They, we couldn't have operated a farm without them. Mm. 
And, and they had money and they to spend money in for time. them. I mean, there were, it was a level of uh, perhaps uneducated or perhaps ornery well, or perha- whatever, yeah. you know, might have been more difficult in the job market. They found a place on the farm and you were paying them with housing and food. Right. Mm-hmm. That was a key part of their uh, wages. But each and every one of these little farms was their own little compound. Mm -hmm. And all these little compounds were a community. And these communities were little towns. Mm -hmm. And on Friday nights, everyone in that community would get together. Mm -hmm. Today, there aren't enough people to get together to mow mow lawn Mm -hmm. in in rural America. We've just emptied rural America of all this vibrancy, all this talent, all this economic power, all this really wonderful uh, people whose lives mattered I, where did they all go mm-hmm. uh, and and why did we do it and in doing that we've just separated american agriculture now into production units you know all the hogs are over mm-hmm. there all the chickens are over here all the dairy is one spot back then they it was were all, all on, on one, one farm, farm. Oh, well was, that's one thing i wanted to talk to you about I, it's interesting because my last book was the history of cheddar and how progress Ruined cheese. You know, it got big and it got uh, run by big companies and then it gets consistent and not so tasty. And food is the same. I mean, farms and food, you know, it used to be you did everything on every farm because that made sense. Then when money got into it, it it just got, you know, more equipment and more money and fewer people. And now the food's more... Uh, consistent but boring, right? And I and we explain in the book that you know my grandparents were probably the first to be excited about that efficiency to bring on right. new machinery. Right. It looked to, good. It looked like to progress. Get faster, yeah. And mm-hmm. and I don't think they knew at the time that that meant that they'd be saying goodbye to people. That that farm would essentially replace itself because it could right. be farmed by one farmer who came in during the day and left. And so we didn't need all these extra farm hands. We didn't need all this extra part-time help. Um, and and it doesn't need it now. It, mm-hmm. It's farmed along with thousands of other acres by the same by the same farmer. What deeply concerns me now, as I look back as to way the way it was, is is the, that loss. Uh, flavor of, of American culture, American agriculture. Mm-hmm. But the one thing, of the many things, the one key element that this book tour this summer has revealed to us, and, and mind you, we've been from Bismarck, North Dakota, to Lincoln, Nebraska, to Millersburg, Ohio, to you know, south of St. Louis, uh, Missouri, now here in New York and City. And now Brooklyn. Now Brooklyn. <laughs> the one thing that I really feel Diane, is that this circle is closing. We're coming back. Well, we're to trying this. to. Well, we're we, trying to. We're making it. We're making it because mm-hmm. you even in, in in our Midwest, where the farms are massive and 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 the machinery is even ma- more massive, we see. I feel that this great revival of youth. Ten years ago, we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this a long time, thirty five years, and ten years ago, I didn't see any of this. Now I see it all, and I like and I like to tell people that. You know, there's a uh, ancient Lakota medicine man. Well, he's not that old. He wasn't that old, really. But he's Black Elk. And Black Elk, one of the sayings he had was he was a shaman. He'd say, remember what you've seen, because everything forgotten will return on the circling wind. Mm. And I feel the wind. I mm-hmm. feel it. Mm. And I see it. And, and look at the food. You 
can buy here now right. that you couldn't buy 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's amazing. Right. right. And and just as a person in Brooklyn, you want to support your CSA. Absolutely. You want to go get your good food. You want to, the, you'll spend money to do it. Well, here's, here's another coincidence or curiosity. The people who are doing that are like what you do. It's not about money. Mm-hmm. It's about love. Mm-hmm. It's 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 about goodness. It's it's about quality. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing with these kids who are bringing all this food back. Mm-hmm. They'll work for nothing because mm-hmm. this is important to them. And and they believe five years from now it'll be better. Ten years from now, mm-hmm. and it will be. Mm-hmm. It will be because well, that's, that's optimistic. I'm well, glad you're optimistic. I'm we not had, an had... optimistic person. People <laughs> will tell you that. We had a couple days being inspired by. Um, an average age of 25 of young farmers at, at, oh, Sto- at Stone, Stone Barn. Barn Center for Food and Agriculture earlier this week at the Young Farmers Conference, and and it's true the average age was 25, and which is which is quite young, and some would say naive, but I wouldn't call them naive. I'd mm-hmm. call them brave. Mm-hmm. Well, they have energy, and and they have this amazing ability, as I'm sure we all did at one time. Well, you make a mistake and you say, oh, I'll fix that tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You don't let it defeat you because it's it, it's not defeating. We older people now seem safer and quieter and calmer. We don't want to take a chance. These kids are taking amazing chances. And in doing these, these amazing things, amazing chances, they're making amazing food, amazing progress. It's And to me, I'm just... It, to me, it's a renaissance. I feel very oh, hopeful. Great, great. I'm really glad to hear that because reading your book uh, was very inspiring in terms of looking back in the past. But I did feel connected to some of the, you know, uh, cheese people and farmers that I know now. And will we be able to sort of save food in in this country? I, I think we we'll save it. We'll go back to where it was. The amazing thing about it, you know, every three or four generations, it always comes back to the simple, really good things. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to be it that way because our generation, your and mine, we have to have two or three generations later to have not known what we know. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I know the hard work it mm-hmm. takes. Do I want to go back and do that? No. You didn't even want to do it no, then. I, no, I didn't. Absolutely not. <laughs> he when, went back to college yeah, and said, forget this. Absolutely. I forget got, this. I got better things to Let do. Let me with, be a writer. Yeah, with 80 hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> so at 150 bucks a week. So, yeah, but I just feel, you know, you know the phrase in American politics now is feel the burn. <laughs> and I feel the breeze. Oh, okay. You feel the breeze. <laughs> That's great. It, one thing that really surprised me, I hadn't checked your real columns, your political columns, so I was completely blind, and I was making farmer assumptions. And then I get to Mary Grace's discussion at the bu- at the back of the book, and I heard about what you read, and I heard that you read the New York Times, which was somewhat telling, the Wall Street Journal, eh. And then I read about the piles of the New Yorkers. <laughs> and then it was like, Oh gosh, he's reading New Yorkers. He's not like you know who I thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we I, talked about that this week actually in Stone Barns, and there's there's some truth to that. I mean, the majority of farm policy in this country is decided by farm groups based mm-hmm. in Middle America mm-hmm. who 
candidly probably are not reading the New Yorker <laughs> or the New York Times and will probably swear not to. I so, know. So there's that, but there's a lot of lobbying dollars behind that. There's a lot of there's a lot of lobbying dollars spent to influence those representatives mm-hmm. and the sea changes are happening on the coast mm-hmm. in, in a lot of those food policy centers. So right. in New York, mm-hmm. in Washington, in Washington State, in Oregon, in California, mm-hmm. um, and elsewhere. And so that's where a lot of that is happening. But but the yeah, the truth is, Dad is 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 a rarity in Tazewell <laughs> County. In the, well, <laughs> he is a New Yorker subscriber. Well, I've been a subscriber since about 1985. Me too. But, I feel uh, like everyone's got piles well, because there are too many of them. Well, right. Well. <laughs> Writers read, and you have to read. Right. And I have to read if I'm going to be uh, be able to discuss a topic or, mm-hmm. or find a topic mm-hmm. to discuss. Mm-hmm. But here's the interesting thing about w- what Mary Grace was talking about earlier about uh, uh, farmers uh, who make farm policy don't read these items. Uh, and that's not just true, but they, not, they don't know food anymore. Mm-hmm. They know farming. Mm-hmm. Right. And they know efficiency right. and they and they know profitability and, and they center their enterprise every day uh, on, on profitability and efficiency. It's got nothing to do with food. Right. And it's got nothing to do with people, it's got about money. And what worries me, I have given you an idea why I'm so hopeful. Uh, well, I'll give you one reason why I, I, you're I, not so hopeful. I'm not so very hopeful. <laughs> I'm very concerned. Okay. Because as a product of a land grant university, uh 35, 40 years ago, I know how they tried to bend people's thought. If you go there to learn how to, to do what? To think. Mm-hmm. And so they teach you how to think. So why would we be surprised when people come out of land-grant colleges who now think differently about farming and don't even think about food? That's what land-grant universities do now. Mm-hmm. So I'm very concerned that these people coming out, these younger generation coming out to farm, mm-hmm. only know about farming, mm-hmm. only care about farming. In other words, they don't care about land. They mm-hmm. don't care about soil and water conservation. They don't learn to care about food. They don't care about consumers. Mm-hmm. You're just a cog in their profitability machine. Right. Well, right. And, and they're trained that way because they're trained as scientists. Right, the science of farming. Farming isn't and, science. And the, the business, of the agribusiness right. of right. farming. Right. Less of the, the health or, or, as Wendell Berry would say, you know, the beauty or the art right. of farming. Yeah, right. well, agriculture is what I like to say at these readings. Agri-food, culture, people. Uh, this is a compound yeah, word. Right. And it's, it doesn't... I never thought of it that way. Well, it doesn't agriculture. say farmers only. It says people, right. culture. And, and I like to remind people that you think about um, going anywhere outside the United States... Uh, and I'll throw a country's name out, and, and, and you tell me what the first thing you think of. France. Cheese. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, this is not it fair. It is cutting the curve. Yeah, yeah. But, but you think about, say, Italy, you think about food. You, you, you talk about Germany, you think about sausage right, and beer. Right. You, you, you can or talk, Asia. Or, yeah, yeah, Japan right, or right. Thailand. What do you and think you want of, the real food. Yeah, you want do, their real food. What do people think about when they say America? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not food. Mm-hmm. Well... There's a reason those countries have such strong identities with food, and that's because their culture is embedded in mm-hmm. food. Mm-hmm. It's not the other way around. But I think it's also because we're so large, so that we have we don't have one food personality. We have mm-hmm. many. Mm-hmm. Well, and these kids are doing that. They're, they're, they're making, they're ensuring that this there will be a new identity. Mm-hmm. Your program, you deal with cheese. I'll bet you, fifty years ago, you could find a lot of what. Your cheesemakers are making mm-hmm. now. It's coming mm-hmm. back. Why? Right. 
So for somehow or another, we just decided it was all going to be Velveeta you right. know, in 1965. Right. My father actually liked Velveeta, mm-hmm. still does. Right, you had Velveeta uh, for lunch yeah. on the farm. Yeah, and you, it, what? Well, we've had some Velveeta discussions on cutting the curd because <laughs> sometimes mac and cheese with Velveeta wins the prize. Yeah. <laughs> but we know it's not cheese. The baking consistency. <laughs> but, but see, we, we manufacture food in this country. Right. They don't do right. that right. anywhere else. Right. Well, unfortunately, we have to end. I want to thank you both for being here, Mary Grace Foxwell and Alan G. Barrett. And the book's name is The Land of Milk and Uncle Honey. I recommend it to everyone who's listening. Well, thank you for having us, Dan. It's been a delight. It has. It has. Great. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.